So is it, oh, wait a minute, their vision still hasn't resolved since that relapse they had that affected the vision? Or is it because they're a shy kid who we think maybe is getting bullied at school and we want to talk to the social worker who can speak to the guidance counselor and kind of get to the bottom of it. So it's way more than just the MS or it's we really are looking at this kid in a hole. From the cubicle to the lab, the studio to the war room, climbing the corporate ladder or joining a scrappy startup, experience a day in the life of the jobs you want. This is the Experience a Day in the Life podcast. We interview professionals, entrepreneurs, and recent grads about what a day is actually like on the job, hour by hour, or as we like to call it, they're a diddle, spelled A-D-I-T-L, which stands for a day in the life. This podcast will inspire you to gain experience beyond the classroom and launch a career of your own. We're your hosts, Chris DeBeau and Matt Poe. Welcome to part one in the two-part Nursing MS series. In this episode, we're going to experience a day in the life, hour by hour, of Jennifer Abate, a senior staff nurse at NYU Langan Health Center. So you can decide if this is a career you can see yourself doing. Her main priority is improving the health and well-being of her patients, but she's also a detective and a confidant for them. You'll see why in a bit. Let's get right into the day. It's 6 a.m. in New Jersey, and Jennifer is waking up wishing she could stay asleep longer. She's not a morning person. She makes breakfast, makes sure her bag is packed, and is out the door by 7 a.m. She hops on an express bus to get into Manhattan via the Lincoln Tunnel, which takes around two hours. She's at NYU Langan Health Medical Center by 9 a.m. with a stacked schedule. Today on the agenda, she's meeting with the team to review each case of the day. She's meeting, coordinating, and helping treat multiple patients, speaking with insurance companies, and completing research activities. She's got a long day ahead of her, so let's meet Jennifer and learn more about what she does. My name is Jennifer Abate, and I am a senior staff nurse at NYU. There, I pretty much help to run the pediatric clinic with our director, and we try to take a holistic approach of treating patients who have multiple sclerosis and other, some rare autoimmune neurological disorders. So we just keep track of them. We follow them. We help them with medication and we try to make sure that pretty much everything about their life that we can assist with is going smoothly. Multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune disease that is affecting your central nervous system. That means your brain and your spinal cord. There's a lot of theories about why it happens. Your body decides to attack the myelin sheath, which is that jelly-like coating that goes over the nerves and makes your brain signals nice and smooth. That tells your legs that we're going to walk, your arms we're going to move, all of your basic functioning that you do without even thinking about it. And for some reason, your body decides, wait a minute, this myelin that covers the nerves, it's a foreign body. We don't like it. We're going to attack it. So it starts to cause inflammation and that makes an injury. And so over time, you get many marks on the brain or spinal cord that kind of look like scars, if you will. And so if you look at the actual, what the word multiple sclerosis comes from Latin, many scars. What are some telltale signs? 
So let's say, okay, so I'm going to take this with a grain of salt because this can be a lot of different symptoms. A lot of times the symptom would be numbness, tingling, but that also, you know, if somebody's arm is numb and tingling, you may think that they're having a heart attack or a stroke. Typically the first thought is not always MS. Um, Usually it's an afterthought, but usually it's somebody who Uh, So this is a good question because there are different types of MS and they usually affect different people, age groups differently. So you can have a woman in their 40s who suddenly notices a slow progression of difficulty walking. And that kind of paints more of a picture of a a primary progressive versus a 21-year-old who has tingling in their legs and it started like above their waist and didn't go away and they thought this is kind of weird so then they go and they get an MRI and then they see that there are lesions or these marks on the brain and that's somebody that probably in the beginning at least you would say okay this person is most likely relapsing remitting MS comes in many different forms or disease courses. According to the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, those disease courses are defined as clinically isolated syndrome, relapsing remitting, secondary progressive, and primary progressive. And Jennifer works with patients and their families to help treat the children affected. Speaking of treatment, at 9 a.m. she's checking messages and emails to make sure she didn't miss anything dire from her patients. And then at 9.30, she's starting clinic rounds with the staff. Today is a clinic day. When we're treating the pediatric patients, we have a whole day, a whole day of clinic that's dedicated to them. And our medical director is a specialist with pediatric MS. She is also a specialist with adults, but um, she's very well known for treating pediatric patients. And so all of the kids that we're going to see that day, we I typically will make a schedule and it has everything from their history, what brought them in to their current situation, what's going on with them physically, what's going on with their MS or other condition that they have going on that maybe mimics MS. And I'm I'm in touch with their parents a lot. So I will also will bring up subjects like, you know, somebody's having a hard time in school and we want to talk about what may be going on that they're having a hard time in school. So is it, oh, wait a minute, their vision still hasn't resolved since that relapse they had that affected the vision? Or is it because they're a shy kid who we think maybe is getting bullied at school and we want to talk to the social worker who can speak to the guidance counselor and kind of get to the bottom of it? So it's way more than just the MS or it's we really are looking at this kid in a whole. Going back to a holistically. Yes. Yes. We we do a we do a team (laughs) approach and um, we have a lot of team members. So we have the doctors, research members, the nurses, social work, nurse practitioner. And we have a few doctors that will come in every once in a while and kind of consult with Dr. Krupp, who are specialists in their own um, domain, like a neuro-ophthalmologist, who's a doctor who's a specialist with neurology as well as the eyes. And so they're really helpful with helping us make diagnoses and yeah, we are like the Avengers. You all have like your own. Yeah, little... we have like this really cool team, and all it's, of your own superpower. Yeah, so we go over the cases. Usually, we'll pull up the MRIs that they just had, and um, our doctor will just she'll say, "All right, everybody, come over here," and she starts teaching, and she'll say, "Like, okay, there's a lesion here, there's a lesion here. Let's compare. Are there new? Are there new lesions?" Um, and yeah, she loves to teach us, which we all love. 
Jennifer is learning every single day. NYU Langone Health is a premier academic medical center devoted to patient care, education, and research, which makes sense as to why the culture is so educational. In other hospitals, it's not always the case. It's now 10 a.m. and Jennifer sees her first patient. She's got to get to the bottom of not only the child's physical health, but also mental and emotional health as well. We try to get a feel for what's going on in the room. So every time you walk into a patient's room, you're going to feel a different energy, depending on what's happening. Um, Sometimes it's not positive. So you kind of want to delve into what's going on. Is it that the child is upset that they're there because they're upset they have this chronic diagnosis? Or is there something going on that has nothing to do with this and they're having a hard time? So how would you be able to tell? So usually I am pretty direct and will kind of ask like, hey, how's school going? And when they're like, oh, it's okay. I'm like, what are your grades like? And then, you know, kids don't lie. So you see on their face (laughs) and you know if it's good or it's bad. And then you kind of, I'll start saying like, well, what's your favorite subject? What subject do you hate? And then they're like, I hate math. And you find out they're failing math. And so that could be just derailing them. Mm -hmm. Even something so we think of as like cute or simple to them, it's their whole world. Right, absolutely. And that affects their health. We need them to be in a great state of mind so that they are in good physical health too. The parents are always in the room, especially with the kids. We have to make sure that they have a guardian or somebody of age with them. That's their family member. But occasionally I will ask the parents if it's okay if I have them step out. Or sometimes I say, is it okay if when the doctor stays and and talks with the child, if me and you can go and have a conversation? Because sometimes the parents are concerned, but they don't want to say it in front of the child because they don't want them to think something's wrong. Some other questions she'll ask are... Hey, like, how are you feeling? Are you having any symptoms? Are you having any issues with walking? Have you fallen? Have you been sick at all? And how is the bathroom going? Are you going to the bathroom a lot? And usually they'll say no. And sometimes I'll say, are you urinating a lot during the night? Does it wake you up? And they'll say, yeah. You know, I have to get up like three times during the night. But they wouldn't think that that's an issue. Right. So you kind of have to pull things out. Making flags, yeah. Yeah. Or sometimes they say, yeah, I'm having a lot of symptoms and they start telling me about them. What are like some medicines that you would common with MS that you yeah. would prescribe? There's injections. There's oral medications that you take pills or capsules. And then there's um, infusions that you get through an IV. And um, so some are different. Some infusions you have once a month, some you have every six months. So they're all kind of different and they all kind of range in efficacy and risk. It's now 11 a.m. and it's on to the next patient. Jennifer told us there's no cookie cutter plan or conversation that she applies to every single patient, even though they all have the same illness. Some patients are optimistic, others need more support. So a big thing we always talk about with each other at work is resilience. And we've just pick up the fact that some kids have it and some kids don't. And your mental state is so important. And not just for MS, I've, I've noticed this for pretty much all areas in healthcare. The kids that are really positive and have this really good outlook on life and they are focused on, they have MS, but that is not their identity. Oftentimes do a lot better than the ones who are this consumes them. Really? Yes. And you do notice a difference. Is there like a, is there a correlation between like how severe they have it and 
what their outlook on life. I could imagine this is something that's really affecting a, a kid. Yeah. It's, it'd probably be kind of hard to... There's a lot of correlation between our patients who have MS and also who have depression. And I can't tell you clinically because I, I don't know if there's a direct correlation mm-hmm. between the two. Um, but I do know from experience that we do have a lot of patients who have both. It's kind of hard to tell where they're going to kind of have more depression anyway or is it this being diagnosed with something chronic that that's making them have depression how do you deal with managing the emotions of the parents are there ever like you know why my child like why is this happening like how do you yeah I think that we all try to take a team approach and kind of you know, I work with this amazing social worker and other nurses and the nurse practitioner, the doctors, we all kind of feed off of each other and kind of like you can feel the room, like who's has a better rapport with the patient or the family member and that person kind of takes over. But I think we don't, we try not to sugarcoat and we try to be there and, you know, tell them how we understand this is a rough situation. This is not what you planned for your child. This is hard. It sucks. We know that, but we're here for you and it's it's going to be okay. And in a year from now, when you're used to it and you're on medicine and you're going back to your normal life, you're going to be like feeling so much better. And they don't always believe you, but in a year they come back, they're totally different. On a lighter note, it's now 12.30 and time for lunch. Since it's a clinic day, she's grabbing a quick lunch, eating while she's working, and it's already time to see the next patient by 1 p.m. Are you worn out yet at this point? Yeah, if we have have like a new patient for that day, I'm pretty worn out because I've probably been talking for two hours and like feel like oh my God, who wants to hear me talk anymore, you know? But um, the parents are just so afraid of what's happening and they need a lot of hand-holding and I like doing that for them. Mm -hmm. But um, but yeah, it can be a little draining. It's now 3 p.m. and Jennifer is seeing patients on this particular day until 6 p.m., but all days are different. But pediatric clinic days are only twice a week. Let's learn what she does outside of clinic days. Some tasks include completing research activities that weren't completed during clinic, assisting patients with setting up appointments, MRIs, and facilitating infusions, and then also talking over the phone with patients with any concerns they have. The remainder of days, she's following up on other patients, speaking with insurance companies, things that nature. There's a lot to unpack there, right? So I want to talk about first the insurance companies. Mm-hmm. What are those conversations like? What are your goals? Are they all different? Do you like those calls? I can imagine maybe I not. Do not like those calls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's like a opening a can of worms. But um, <laughs> healthcare and the insurance just they drive us crazy. They like to deny everything, a lot of the insurance companies. And part of my job is sometimes even writing letters and having like academic references and explaining why this person needs this drug because there's a doctor at the insurance company who's going to review the case and look at the chart notes and say like, well, you didn't try this medicine first. So why would we give you this one that's more expensive? But so we have to make a case for why this patient needs this wow. medicine because maybe it's more expensive, but it's probably because it's more effective. I like for some reason didn't 
put like two and two together that there are doctors that work at insurance companies that would look at these cases because I just hear like kind of like that basically insurance companies are like evil. Yeah, I always say that they went to the dark side. Yeah, that they went to the dark side. (laughs) Yeah. Why are you denying this patient? They're basically like you know, deciding on if this patient gets treatment or not by yeah. not like physically ever really Touching treating the patient. Them. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's the same kind of yes. um, and critique, I guess. The devil's advocate argument is that they just think that everything is so expensive and that patients are getting stuff that they don't really need, which is making everybody else having to pay more in premiums. So it makes sense, but Trying it's to so frustrating. That, yeah, because yeah, you're like, this person is 13 years old. They need this medication. What's wrong with you? That's how, I, you know, my perspectives. There's many times where we have to change our medication plan because mm-hmm. the insurance won't cover it. Wow. And That's a shame. Yeah, yeah, and we'll talk to the patient and I'll, I'm very honest with them because it's, you know, it's not our choice, but I'll say, listen, this is unfortunately your plan. So we're going to try it for a couple of months and we're going to see what happens and we're going to just make a case for that medication in three months. We're just, we're going to do what we have to do. To all the college students who are listening to this, you're probably writing papers in APA or maybe even MLA format thinking to yourself, when am I ever going to use this outside of school? If you want to work as a staff nurse at a university medical center, you better know it like the back of your hand. Jennifer is sending reports and letters and other documentation to insurance companies to make each patient's case on why he or she needs coverage for a certain medication. This all needs to be formatted in the correct way. I write a letter that I have to say the um, APA format and all that stuff in nursing school that everybody hates doing actually comes in handy. <laughs> okay, so yes. you're actually using it. You're actually, you're using, actually it. using it. I I write the APA format in those letters. I'm like, I can't believe I'm using this. <laughs> um, but yeah, and it, you write a case report about this patient, about how they presented their symptoms, and you make a really strong case for why certain medications may be safer for them or more effective. Maybe one of our big medications that's very um, effective is just not even effective enough for them and they have to move up. We show why they're having new lesions on their MRI, they had a new relapse, um, and they need this medication. And I'm going to show you journal articles and uh, meta-analyses that show oh, that this happened and it okay. was f- and it was helpful. And then you send wow. the literature with it. Insurance also. They just make us document, I breathed twice two minutes ago. I have to document that. You know, it's <laughs> everything is about yeah. if you didn't document it, you didn't do it. And that mm. takes away from being with the patient because you know you have to document a book. So time is money in that sense. And that's a lot of time. An excellent point. Um, we talk about that all the time. And I think the problem is that if you're asking somebody who's an administrator, who's not clinical to write this letter, mm-hmm. they can do it. They can physically do it. Maybe they are, have really great writing skills, but they might not know the clinical background in order to put it all together to make a strong case because mm. they might not really understand how these drugs work. Or if like, let's say we're giving something off label because mm-hmm. we know that it's been shown in different studies to help something. The medication has been approved by the FDA for something but not for what we're going to give it for. Sometimes writing that letter can be really challenging because it's like there might not be actual literature about why we're doing it, but we're theorizing and we know it's safe, so we're going to try. And do you guys know of drugs or use drugs that aren't like aren't approved by the FDA? Like, are you allowed to do that? You are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the FDA is just like it's like a stamp of approval of the government. It's not like necessarily you cannot use this. Right. So we use drugs that have 
been approved by the FDA for something. We we only use drugs that have been studied in clinical trials. There's a lot of liter- literature about them. Um, we know that they're safe. We know they're effective. But maybe there's just... So getting a drug approved for a disease is kind of a financial thing within itself because a lot of money to make a drug trial. So let's say a particular drug is going to lose their patent and the drug is going to go generic in six months. They're not going to spend millions of dollars making a drug trial for this other disease that they're not getting the money back. Yeah, gotcha. And they know something else is going to come out and the drug is going to go generic. So that happens with a couple of our drugs that we use in MS that may not be totally FDA approved for it, but it's been shown super effective mm-hmm. in other diseases and in MS, and we use it all the time. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice perspective mm-hmm. from, from the back end. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of the insurance companies, there's a few that we do that with, and they just approve it mm-hmm. because it's there's so much literature out there now that shows Good. that it works. On this particular day, between three and six, she had some time to finish up some research projects she's been working on with her colleague. Everyone at the office is somehow involved in a research at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, the doctors are very into research. They've done really cool um, studies and articles, and they've worked with certain drug companies. Um, so some of the protocols that drug companies have for certain drugs is developed because of the way our doctors gave it to okay. patients and found that it was it really helped. That happens a lot, and don't know how many clinical trials or studies are going on right now, but there's a lot. There's always something new coming around. The one that I would be working on today and pretty much trying to catch up on all the time is a study that's dedicated for the pediatric patients and trying to find out why these rare demyelinating autoimmune conditions are coming from in, in children. So it involves giving the patient's parents of very detailed questionnaire and just everything about their assessment gets put into this this big database and it's just collecting information from all these different centers around the country and they're finding out pretty cool stuff every year. And so all the doctors who are in on the study, the doctor I work with, she's one of the main heads of the study. She goes and meets with everybody once a year and they kind of get all the information together and they release it. Nice. So are you an author? At all on the on the papers? I am not yet, but I hope to be soon. Jennifer is also enrolled in a master's program at NYU specializing as a family nurse practitioner. We'll learn more about why she did it and what it takes to get into a master's nursing program next in part two, becoming a senior staff nurse. Where do classes fit into your overall schedule? Yeah. Are they at night? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they're at night. Every um, day or? Um, usually about twice a week because I'm in okay. two classes right now. Cool. So um they made it really, really easy to do it while you're, well, it's, I shouldn't say easy, but um, <laughs> they made it work so you can work full time and you can be going to school. Cool. All right. Yeah. It's good to know that uh, they're flexible like that. Yeah. There's, so, a, there's a lot of students out there who are like, you know, I just got to work, but I know I need more, or I want to keep going into school, but like I need money. Yeah. So it's, yeah. There's some nights where I just want to go home. I don't want to <laughs> yeah. be at school and get home at 10, 11 o'clock at yeah. night, right. but- You have to, like, I have to remember the big picture and why I'm doing it.
So you just experienced a day in the life of an NYU senior staff nurse, but how does one actually become a nurse? In part two of the Nursing MS series, join us as we go through Jennifer's career journey and experiences leading up to where she is today. There's so much that goes into becoming a nurse, let alone actually being a nurse. We'll walk you through her experience in nursing school, the ER, ICU, and more. So stay tuned. At Experience a Day in the Life, we're building an online library of content all focused on a diddle or a day in the life of different jobs and professions across the world in all different industries. So if you want to share your a diddle, you can do so at xadiddle.com slash share dash my dash a diddle. That's xadiddle.com slash share dash my dash a-d-i-t-l. Thanks for listening. Head over to xadiddle.com. That's x-a-d-i-t-l.com. There you can find the show notes for this series and more A Day in the Life articles. And you can get to know us and our guests more by joining our communities on social media. Follow at xadiddle on Instagram and on LinkedIn by searching for Krista Bow and Matt with one T Poe. If you learned something in this episode, please take some time to help our mission by leaving a positive rating and review of the show. Each week, we bring you a new interview series with guests from different jobs and different industries. In each series, we'll live a specific day in the life, hour by hour, and experience their career journey. So don't forget to subscribe.